Listen as I read God's Word. The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who is rich should take pride in his low position because he will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. It blossom, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will fade away even while he goes about his business. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Let's pray together. Father, your word, as we have just read and heard, reminds us of the truths of your grace. May we Embrace them, understand them, and truly seek for them to be part of our very being. Living and relying, resting upon your very truth and your grace that has been poured out for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. About nine years ago, we were... About three years into the church plant as we began Christ's community, uh, our daughters were just about three years old, maybe th between three and four. They were very, very young. And <clears throat> I, uh, at that time, went uh, to the doctor for a routine checkup, and there was a particular lesion found in my situation, and they were very concerned, and so uh, they immediately wanted to do a biopsy. And uh, that was somewhat concerning, and so they did. And uh, because of the nature of the biopsy and the location, the doctor, the specialist, told me, now, um, you need to know and understand that as we go and do this particular procedure, this outpatient procedure, that, uh, of course, we'll do a, a pathology, we'll do the testing and so forth, but due to the nature of what, this, what we believe this might be, about 95% sure that it's going to be malignant. And this is before they ever even did the biopsy. So there's only a 5% chance that it will be good news. So I want you to realize that before we go forward. I said, well, I appreciate that. And we went forward. And it really was quite rapid, quite quick. They, uh, they did the uh, procedure, waited about three days, and waited for the phone to ring. During that time, I can't tell you how many thoughts went through my head. How many thoughts went through my brain thinking about all of the implications of what that phone call might mean for me? And it was quite a trying time. Temptation was, putting it mildly, something that I certainly struggle with. Temptation to believe 
all the worst, to believe all that would probably end up being the case once I found out what I believed to be the case. Well, the phone call came, and sure enough, it was benign. God was gracious. His grace was there. I don't understand to this day, of course, why, other than he's a God that loves. He's a God that's benevolent and very kind and merciful. And he was at that time in our life, in my life, in our family. But you know, when you go through something like that, you really begin to see where your faith really is. It's one thing for me to preach it. It's another thing to truly experience it and to, and to have to live it. And we all have experiences, maybe not that specifically like that, but similar yet different, where we all have things that come into our life that God allows for providentially to happen, and we begin through our struggle and our own flesh to doubt, to be tempted to consider that God really isn't the God I thought he was, and being deceived to believe something that really isn't true, though we want to believe differently, we struggle. James, today in these few verses, I believe challenges our thinking about what it means to be tested, to be tempted, and what that means. And yet, even in our test being tested and being tempted, we're not going to allow ourselves to be deceived. Because God is who he has said he is. He continues to remain constantly the God that we have put our faith in. James reminds us of this by first challenging our thinking and understanding our circumstance. In the first few verses, James is speaking to, of course, this audience, primarily uh, as we understand an audience that is probably going through <clears throat> uh, suffering, persecution in their own situation. And as James writes to them, he challenges them as they're living with one another as fellow believers, but also even in their community with those that do not know the Lord, that as they go through their daily routines, they understand that their particular circumstance, whatever it might be for them, is as God would have it, and how they should view themselves, many probably of whom who were in a very difficult position. Look at verses 9 through 11 <clears throat> again. James says, The brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position, but the one who's rich should take pride in his low position, because he'll pass away like a wild flower. James describes two different positions of life, two circumstances of life, very Clearly, the first is one who is, as he says, in humble circumstance. And what he is probably referring to is not simply a state of the heart or of the mind of humility, but one who's in a circumstance where they are humble in their means, probably in their resources, probably considering more on the poverty side of economic understanding where they were. So those who were probably less fortunate or without much in economic terms, he addresses them and says, this person should take pride in their high position. But then he says those who are in the opposite circumstance, who are rich in this world, should take pride in their 
low position. So it's kind of just the opposites of what you might expect. Now, when James says to both the humble and those who are rich to take pride in their circumstance, that seems kind of an odd way to express uh, an exhortation to a Christian brother or sister. Take pride in your position of lowliness or your high position. And what he's trying to say is not that a believer should be prideful, because we know Scripture tells us, of course, that the heart should not be prideful and boast or brag in any uh, shape or form. But that's not really what James is trying to say. He's telling those in his audience to, considering where they are, to have an inward awareness of the heart A confidence in not themselves, which would be taking pride in oneself, but a confidence in God-given circumstances that he's placed them in, whether in humble circumstance or in rich circumstance, and that they should have confidence in God's provision for them, not boasting outwardly of their own accomplishments in any measure. But why does James address the poor in this way. Well, the poor, if you could think like probably James was considering when he wrote these words, the poor in this world, and even today, might view their own circumstance with self-pity, with basing their value on their material lack of wealth and feeling less valued in this world because they don't have much resources. Oftentimes, those who have much less can become very discouraged as they look around and compare themselves to those around them, those who live in their own community. And for those of us who look around and see others who seem to be prospering so much more, and we're struggling, it seems, even so much more, there could be a temptation or a struggle towards seeing others being valued more, and ourselves being valued even less. So James exhorts those in humble circumstances to see their own position, not horizontally in comparison, but to see our position in Christ as being heirs of royalty, spiritual royalty, blessed in the riches we have in Christ. Just as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, he says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So as Paul writes these words, James is saying the same thing. I want you to be reminded of the rich inheritance you have in Christ, that your circumstance in this world of maybe having less materially, less temporally, does not dictate your value and your worth. And it should not control your satisfaction, your contentment in this life. And that's a challenge for anyone particularly those who look around and see their own circumstance as being so much less. 
But why would James address the rich as he says the rich should take pride in their low position? <clears throat> well, you know, the rich in this world, those who have much greater resources, might view their own circumstance with self-reliance, possibly, thinking that they have much because of what they have accomplished, what they have done for themselves. The rich might be feeling they are more important in the eyes of others than they really are or that, than they should be. And so James considers those thoughts to his audience of their, that circumstance, and he says some thoughtful words to them. He exhorts the rich in their circumstance to see their blessings and their riches as only a sign of God's grace and kindness to them, not because they deserve the wealth that they've received, the affluence or the blessings temporally that God has poured out upon them, but to view themselves as stewards, managers, those who carefully understand the value of what they've been given and where their value really lies, not in those things, but in who they are also as a child of God and what He has entrusted to their care. First <clears throat> Timothy, Paul writes and he says in chapter 6, command, as he says to Timothy, those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. <clears throat> These are the words that I, I'm sure James would be <clears throat> also speaking if he could to those who would be found in rich circumstance, who have been given great opportunity to steward the blessings that God's given them. As you look at verse 12, and James continues and says, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. He connects verse 12 really back all the way, though it's not here in this text today, but two weeks ago we saw back to verse 3. He connects verse 12 back to verse 3, where he is, as we uh, reviewed and understood talks about trials and testings of our faith. He connects all the way back and helps the reader to view their testings as God's tool for spiritual growth, God's tool for spiritual maturity. And as Christians, we, we know will, if not already, I'm sure we all have, be tested in this life. We will be tested again we know because God tells us we will be, and we can look back and see how we have been tested in our own life and how our faith will be put through, in a sense, the fires of purification, the fires of purifying that which hopefully burns away that which should be burned off. James reminds us that we're blessed when we persevere. And we're blessed when we stand the test and we can look forward to our eternal reward. Those who have stood the test will receive the crown of life, verse 12, that God has promised to those who love Him. Understanding our circumstance, whether with great resources and affluence or with very little 
means in this world right now. In either case, both should take confidence in their value as a child of God, not in what they have or what they don't have. In either case, our attention must be again firmly placed back at the cross, back where we see what God has done for us through His Son. Understanding the circumstance, though, leads us to then what James says in verse 13 through 16. Understanding our temptation. What temptation really is about. And it's not a coincidence that in these verses, James brings up the subject of temptation right after, in the context, he's just addressed the issue of being poor and being rich and how to view those circumstances. In light of that, it's really not odd he would then go on to speak about what temptation is about and how a believer should view being tempted in our own life daily. You see, both the poor and the rich in this world and everyone in between, both are tempted to view the other one in a negative light. Isn't that true? The rich can view the poor in probably a negative light and do. The poor will view the rich in a negative light and they do. Oftentimes we see this over and over again. You see, the poor are often tempted to view the rich as being self-absorbed, selfish because they have so much and they want to gain even more, lacking in compassion, lacking in being merciful to their fellow man, especially to their less fortunate brother or sister. The rich are tempted to view the poor as being lazy, undisciplined in their life, mooching off the efforts of others and not willing to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and do the work that's necessary. And that's kind of why they're in the position they are to begin with. Ever had either one of those feelings? Any one of those thoughts in your life? I'm sure if we're honest, we've all at some point struggled with one aspect or the other. In fact, I would say right now, our nation could be drawn along these two ideological lines. Right now. The very nation we live in. One viewing the other. But James calls us not to give in to that temptation. To believe those thoughts so that we might then separate ourselves from those around us, but instead to resist those thoughts and to understand what God is doing. James has just reminded us that trials and testings, they're from the hand of God. They happen under God's providence, His purposes for us. So what's the difference between trials and temptations? What is the difference, because there is a difference, between a trial in the Christian's life and a temptation? Well, the main difference is that trials, as James has told us already, are to be endured, where temptation is to be resisted. You see, oftentimes we try to resist trials, but God calls us not to resist them, but to embrace them, to see them as directly from His hand and His purposes in our life, and to trust 
to rest in Him, to move forward, to endure, to persevere, not to resist trials and testings. But instead, we are to resist temptation. We are to resist those things that tempt us against God's hand of providence, against His truth and love for us. The main difference is that trials are to be endured, to be persevered, for us to experience trials, but we are not to experience giving in to temptation. That's not God's desire for us. We can't stop temptation from coming, but we should not follow and give ourselves to it. Verses 13 to 15, James examines the whole process of how temptation happens. It's a great kind of exercise of examining and really breaking down when we're tempted, what really happens to a believer, to anyone, but particularly for us as followers of Christ. What happens in our heart inwardly with temptation when it comes Verse 13, it says, first of all, God cannot be tempted, James says. He cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. You see, the source of temptation, we must first of all understand, is not God. God is not the source of your temptation or mine. Never is he the source of it. He may allow, he allows it to happen, but he's not the one that seeks to tempt us with evil. For God cannot be, in any sense, connected with evil. He is not one who brings evil temptation to us and entices us to want to follow it in any shape or form. God's nature is holy. It is perfect. And so, He tempts no one. He's not even capable himself of giving in to temptation, nor enticing or tempting someone else with evil desires. So what is the source of our temptation? Well, first, the evil one. The evil one is a tempter. The evil one and all of his minions and his whole dominion of darkness seeks to want to tempt and take us down spiritually. And he is relentless in seeking to do that. Matthew 4. Remember when Jesus was being tempted by the evil one, Satan? Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter, and that's his name in Scripture, the tempter came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. He's called the tempter. That's his title, even in Scripture. And so, he certainly seeks to scheme, to work, so that you would give in to the temptation that he places before you. But secondly, we're tempted by the world and all of its trappings. The world and all of its trappings constantly as we live in this world is moving and acting not in accord with, with, with what God's truth is but in the exact opposite seeking for us to be enticed to be taken away by its trappings and its ways the world constantly is at work that way it never stops it never stops 24 7 and especially in our age today of technology 
24-7, 365 days a year, we can be distracted. All of us can be. With the internet, with computers, with 24-hour open uh, businesses, everything that goes on and on and on, we constantly can be plugged into what the world has to offer and never pull away, never consider what God is calling us to. 1 John chapter 2 says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man... The lust of his eyes, the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. See, the world is just the opposite in enticing us to what God would desire for us. So, the tempter, the evil one, the world and all of its trappings. But then there's a third way in which we're enticed, we're tempted. And this might be the greatest method of us being tempted of all. Our own flesh our own flesh. The most probably greatest means of us being daily tempted and enticed is with our own flesh. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus asked Peter, James, and John to keep watch. Three times He returned to them for those few hours and they were sleeping. They couldn't just stay awake for just a little bit Their flesh was too great. Mark chapter 14, Jesus said to Peter, James, and John, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. It constantly seeks our attention. Our flesh feeding our desires, the cravings that we have, the desires of what we see, all the things we long for, it doesn't stop. It never stops. And it's always striving to pull us, pull us away from where Christ desires for us to be with Him. The Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. Perhaps better than anyone, the Apostle Paul describes this inner fighting against the flesh in Romans 7 so well. You familiar with Romans 7? He says, I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. The flesh constantly grabbing for our attention and longing for us to follow it. Here's the key. Being tempted is not sinful. No. Giving in to it is. Being tempted, it happens daily. That's not sinful. We should have no guilt being bombarded with temptations from the world, the flesh, and the devil every single day, every single minute, all the time. As it ha- you should not have any guilt over that. So if you have, understand there is no guilt being tempted. It's giving in to the temptation that then leads us astray. That James describes each one is tempted when by his own evil desire. Verse 14, he's dragged away and enticed. Then, 
after the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Step-by-step process. You know those steps even as you're going through them, don't you? I know I do. The moment that your lips open, you say the words you know you shouldn't be saying, you know that what you're saying you shouldn't be saying as you're saying it. Don't you? I do. And it just keeps coming. It just flows freely right out of my mouth. Or the thoughts that are tempting me and then give myself to then go ahead and keep thinking those thoughts, to sit on those thoughts, to then feed upon those thoughts, allow my mind to go where it should not go. Whatever it might be, we allow ourselves to be taken away and that gives birth to sin. Again, being tempted is not sinful. Giving into it is. You see, sin is not a foregone conclusion just because we're tempted. Let me say that again. Sin is not, nor it should be, a foregone conclusion just because we're tempted. Whenever you're tempted, don't immediately just wave the white flag. Whenever temptation comes and say, there it is again, I'm done. Might as well go ahead and just give in to it. But don't we do that? Haven't you done that? Especially with the same temptation and the same struggle that you've had for months, years. It comes, it knocks on the door, and you say, oh, it's you again. Come on in. I know I'm I'm not strong enough. And we're not in our own strength. And so we wave the white flag so quickly, so easily, and yet we're called to resist. In fact, God tells us that there is never a temptation which arises that you are forced to follow. Now, I'm not sure if you heard what I just said. There is never a temptation that comes to you that you are forced to have to follow and give in to, no matter what it is. Scripture clearly says that. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, what does it say? No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. What is Scripture saying? It's saying when temptation comes, God's going to be faithful. He's going to always provide an escape hatch every time. There will ne- you will never be locked in with that temptation to where you cannot go away from it. It may be very, very hard, and that's why God gives us all kinds of principles, understanding from Scripture of having brothers and sisters around us, having the body of Christ holding us up, having accountability, having all kinds of things, His Word, His, His, word, His Spirit. I mean, there's so many things we must have to fight temptation so that we might take the escape route, but we're never forced. We're always able. God provides, and it says God's faithful. You see, it's not on us. It's on His shoulders to provide that way out. And He always does every time. God promises His protection and relief from all temptation. 
And yet, He calls us to have faith, to trust in His promises. We are more apt to trust God's promises and to not yield to temptation when? When are we more apt to not yield to temptation and to trust that God is going to do what He says He's going to do for us when temptation comes? When are you more apt to do that? It's when you see, first of all, God as being good. If you don't believe God's good, then what happens? Well, what's the use? Might as well give in. God doesn't care anyway. And we just go ahead and go. When we don't see God as the giver of all good gifts, we don't see Him as the one who is the one who gives and provides, when we don't see God that way, then temptation will overtake us and we'll give in. That's why James says we must understand God's good gifts. Verse 16, he says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers. What does he mean, don't be deceived? Don't be deceived to believe that when you're tested and you're tempted, that God is not still good. That's what you shouldn't be deceived. Don't believe the lie that God is not good. Even though your circumstance whether of humble means or rich means or any means, whatever your circumstance, don't believe the lie. Don't be deceived. Why? Because we have a tendency to be deceived. Don't we all? We have a tendency to kind of follow that thought, go that way, allowing us to be tricked, to be deceived by the world, the flesh, or the devil, that God really isn't who He says He is. We have a tendency to believe God is not good, that things happen in our life are really meaningless, or even they're meant for evil. They're meant not for our good. Monday, I got a phone call from Ben Thompson. In case you don't know, Ben and Victoria, a great couple in our our church family. They have two children, and this week, Victoria, they had their third. And so, uh, exciting for them. Monday, I got a phone call, and opportunity has been shared what they were going through had just gone to the doctor and they were already late on the term when the baby was due and and they were really struggling and I said well certainly let me ask one of the elders let's go let's come over with you and let's spend some time praying about it and they said we really would appreciate that and so um, I asked Paul he went with me we went over to their house and we sat down with them and asked and listened to where they were going through and it was truly a, a moment I believe that God met us all there for there was a struggle to see the, the child was at least in the womb, not in the position it needed to be so that they could have a natural delivery. And they really wanted for that to happen that way for all kinds of reasons. But it, at that point on Monday, wasn't. And so a C-section was possibly in the future. And Thursday was going to be the deadline. So we prayed. And specifically, we didn't just pray that God would do a work and have the baby turn the right position, which we prayed for, but we prayed that God's peace and God's rest would come over Ben and Victoria so that they would be able to walk through these days knowing that God will provide whatever he provides. And Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday went, the baby still did not move, and they ended up having a C-section. I talked to Ben just yesterday on the phone, and he said, I just want you to know that when we prayed together 
And since that point, God really gave us just an incredible sense of his presence and peace to trust that he was going to take care of everything. And whatever the outcome needed to be temporally was his perfect will for us. What a blessing that they were able to trust God in that circumstance being tempted to not believe God was good, that he didn't want the best for them. They were tempted, but when reminded of God's blessing and his presence, they saw his goodness. And what a joy that was and how peace came over them. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is saying, If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? How much more will your Father in heaven give? Give good gifts to those who ask him. James reminds us of just how truthful and solid this is in verse 17 when he says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. When you look up, what do you see in the sky? You see the sun? You see the moon? You see the stars? Do they change from day to day? No. They are constantly the same every day. And that's what James is saving, saying to us. Just as these things that God has created are fixed, constant, never changing, as you look up, the one who created them is the one behind them who never changes. He's provided that constant reminder, even in the heavens that he's created. God chose to give us that. He never changes. Even in adversity, God doesn't change. His promises never change. The ultimate display of God's goodness and generosity, though, is when he is the giver as the giver of the very gospel itself. His son and his grace given to us. God's goodness never changes. God chose, in verse 18, to give us birth through the word of truth. See, God chose us to give us rebirth in his son, even when we didn't deserve to receive this amazing gift. He chose to do that. That is the greatest gift, verse 18, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Interesting way that James would describe that we would be kind of the first fruits of all he's created. That whole term, first fruits, if you go back into the Old Testament, you think about literally the first fruits were literally of livestock or of grain, of a vineyard, of a field. The first fruits was what God's people would take and present unto God from what He had already given them. But then in Jeremiah, the nation of Israel is figuratively described as first fruits. And then the New Testament, Christians are even figuratively called God's first fruits. Fruits. Moving on, in Revelation, God's redeemed are described as the first fruits offered to God on that day. Verse 4 of chapter 14. And they were purchased from among men and offered as first fruits to God and the Lamb. You see, we who are God's people will be the first fruits offered to Him. We will be offered as the first fruits. And here's the key about first fruits. Whether it's the Old Testament literally or even all the way into Revelation, first fruits are always what? The result of God's undeserved kindness and His grace 
to us. That's what first fruits are. We are the result of God's undeserved kindness. Anytime you have a first fruit, God has done the work. Anytime you have a first fruit, it points to God's grace and His goodness. Never did an Old Testament Israelite, never did a New Testament believer consider the term first fruit and think, here are my first fruits. When that happened, then we saw Cain and Abel, what happened there. But when we understand first fruits as God has intended it, we understand it's from His hand. It's His grace. It's His mercy. We point others to God's first fruits, His kindness, and we ourselves are that undeserved, receive that undeserved kindness. The table we're about ready to partake in, in just a moment, it points us to God's grace and undeserved kindness just as His first fruits do. We're reminded as we partake in just a moment of God's loving kindness towards us and that He is good. This table shows us that God is good. He's the giver of all good gifts. The greatest being His Son, that we would receive Him and His grace. Even now, let's pray.